Well, thank you for that welcome and for that prayer. Um, it's a real joy to be with you. Um, yeah, I've, I've been here in this church a few times and it's always a tremendous privilege to be with you. Um, I'm here in Edinburgh partly because my kids, my oldest um, boys are, are, are twins and they're 12 and they're in a play here at the Fringe, uh, Bugsy Malone. So I've just been watching that before zipping over here. Um, so there'll be no sort of splurge guns and pies in faces tonight. Um, but we're going to explore this question together of why, um, why be a Christian? Why, um, in the 21st century, why would we be followers of Jesus? And I wanted to start by saying that um, at the heart of the Christian faith, there's this idea that as human beings, we were made for relationship with God. That is our purpose in life. That is why we are here on this earth. And that every human being, whoever we are, whatever our background, whatever our culture, whatever our experiences, that all of us have this common humanity and we have this common longing in our hearts for something more than just the kind of material life we happen to be experiencing. And that's because we've been made for that something more. The story is told of a woman who's walking along a beach and she stumbled on a genie's lamp, so it's obviously a true story. She picked it up and rubbed it and the genie appeared and the amazed woman said, oh good, am I going to get three wishes? The genie said, no, I'm afraid that due to inflation, constant downsizing, uh, low wages in the third world and very fierce global competition, you can only have one wish, so make it good. The woman didn't hesitate for a second. She reached into her handbag and produced a map of the world. She pointed to the Middle East and she said, see this map? I want these countries to stop fighting each other. The genie said, listen, lady, those countries have been at war for thousands of years. I'm good, but I'm not that good. I don't think it can be done. Make another wish. So she thought for a moment and she said, well, you know, I've never been able to find quite the right partner. One that's considerate and fun, likes cooking and helps with the cleaning, is attractive and gets on with my mother, doesn't watch sports all the time and is faithful. That's what I wish for, the perfect mate. The genie let out a long sigh and said, okay, give me the map back. What do you think and what do the people in your life around you think is really going to make us all happy? What is it that is going to fill that longing, that ache that is common to all human beings, that longing for more, that longing for something other? Well, the brilliant psychoanalyst Oliver Sacks, who wrote the book Awakenings, you may have seen the film if you're old enough, uh, said this... All of us have a basic intuitive feeling that once we were whole and well, at ease, at peace, at home in this world, totally united with the ground of our being. But, he writes, as human beings, we have lost that primal, happy, innocent state and we fell into our present sickness and suffering. He writes, we had something of infinite preciousness, but we lost it. And we spend the rest of our lives searching for what we have lost. Perhaps one day we will find it. 
That's someone who's not a Christian, not reflecting anything from the book of Genesis, but someone who is an expert in the human condition, analysing what it means to be human. At the heart of the Christian faith is a claim that Jesus Christ and relationship with him is the only thing, the only thing that has the capacity to answer that deepest longing of every human heart. One of my colleagues um, works in the Middle East and um, he was quite recently in Baghdad about six, seven weeks ago. And they were holding some public um, events, inviting people to come and hear about the Christian faith and inviting people to answer, uh, to ask their questions about Christian faith. And they had a, a, a kind of tent um, there in Baghdad and people would come in and um, hear something and then ask their questions. And about halfway through the week, my colleague received a message through an intermediary. And the intermediary, um, the message that they had was that the most famous sheikh on Iraqi TV was asking to have a conversation with my friend. And uh, my friend didn't know, is this a trap? Is this something I should do? I'm not sure whether it would be safe. And prevaricated about it for a bit, um, sent some text messages and various people prayed. And he decided to go and meet this guy. So they talked for hours and my friend described it as very delicate, very careful conversation, as I'm sure you can imagine. And two hours in, he, my colleague who's a Christian, felt very strongly that the Holy Spirit was prompting him, was saying to him, be braver, be braver. And so he decided to ask the sheikh a question and this, a question, and this is what he asked him. He said, tell me, what do you think about Jesus Christ? When you hear his name, how do you perceive him? That was the question. There was a bit of a silence and the sheikh replied, and apparently it's very sort of poetic in Arabic, but we'll have to make do with English. He said this, he said, I don't believe that there is a genuinely sincere person who hears about Jesus Christ And his soul does not long to make his home in Jesus Christ. So my colleague said to him, well, can I ask you, if if you feel this way, what prevents you from making your soul's home in Jesus Christ? And the man answered, nothing, that's why you're here. So my colleague said, can I pray with you? And just a few weeks ago, they knelt down in Baghdad and asked God in Jesus Christ to enter that man's heart. What do you think the answer is? What do you think is the thing that is going to be able to satisfy the longing of every human heart, whether you're from Scotland, whether you're visiting from somewhere else, um, whether you originate from Iraq, regardless of your socioeconomic background, regardless of culture or language, what is it that you really believe can make us fulfilled as human beings? 
Well, we live in a world where we are told constantly that there are things that have the power and the potential to satisfy us. I would say in the West, probably the primary path to that sort of satisfaction is the pursuit of material wealth. But I wonder if we were to examine the evidence, if we were to examine the evidence for the claim that being richer will make you happy, if we were to to explore that together, would the evidence hold up? Even though millions of people are pursuing wealth and material things in order to make them happy, does the evidence point us to that as as a realistic potential? for fulfilling us as human beings. Well, Oliver James in his book, Affluenza, found in his research that as human beings, when we center our lives on money, possessions, and personal appearance, what happens is not that we get happier. What happens is that as human beings, we begin to suffer from increased levels of depression, anxiety, and relationship breakdown. His research found that the more materialistic we are as human beings, the less loyal, helpful, and joyful we become. He describes affluenza as a virus-like condition spreading through affluent countries. He says, in these countries, notably English-speaking ones, people define themselves by how much money they make and are ruled by other values like how attractive they look or how famous they might be. And so much so that we've moved from a state of being to, as a society, a state of having. And he explains how in such a society when in which people often have what they need already, the job of advertisers then is to create false needs. To create need in us for stuff that we don't have, but actually we don't really need and even the stuff that we do buy is designed to make us want more in the 1950s it was um, the, the phrase was called planned obsolescence so there was this idea that you make people buy things they don't need and you've you've built into that thing that they don't need obsolescence the fact that they're not going to need it for very long One writer called it instilling in the buyer the desire to own something a little newer, a little better, a little sooner than is necessary. Oliver James then goes on to explore the fallout from 60 years. So fast forward from the 1950s, 60 years in a culture of the creation of false needs. And what he notices is that the fallout gets worse with each successive generation, as each generation upon generation is more anxious and more depressed. That's where the research lands us. Being materialistic will not make you happier. That's what the the studies say, what the research says. And then we could look at individuals. We could look at someone like Marcus Persson, the creator of Minecraft, who sold his gaming company to Microsoft for £2.5 billion in 2014. But it didn't give him the huge happiness boost you might expect, as his tweet from August 2015 gives us an insight into. He says, hanging out in Ibiza with a bunch of friends, partying with famous people, able to do whatever I want, and I've never felt more isolated. 
Or we could look at the billionaire John Caldwell, who was the founder of Phones for You, and he admitted on the BBC programme, Britain's Spending Secrets, that there are times when he would put his happiness level at just one or two out of ten. What do you think will make you happy? Christian faith says that we've been created with this, um, with this God-shaped hole, if you like. We've been created with a capacity for love and relationship and meaning and purpose. And that ultimately all of that can be satisfied in finding relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Our culture recognises that we have these longings and uh, pours, if you like, petrol on the fire of those longings whilst also saying what is going to answer that is material wealth. Another thing that we're told alongside material wealth is the idea that if you become famous, if you have an adoring public, that will make you happy. If only you could reach a sort of status in life where, where millions of people know who you are and are interested in you, that's the path to happiness. Well, another friend and colleague who works with me is a woman called Tracy, Tracy Trinita. She was Indonesia's first supermodel and she worked alongside Naomi Campbell and Kate Moss and she modelled for um, the world's top designers, people like Yves Saint Laurent, Jean-Paul Gaultier, Kenzo. Um, I don't know if you remember that first Four Faces of Benetton advert. If any of you are old enough to remember the first one, she was one of those faces. And she describes as a teenager moving to New York City believing that if she could become famous, then um, she could be happy. But despite the glamour and the fame of that life, she was in the first Zoolander movie, if any of you have seen that culturally iconic film. Despite the glamour and the fame of being in that sort of movie, at being at the kind of parties that those sort of people are at, she experienced total emptiness. And during her quest for happiness, she noticed amongst her group of friends that there were people who seemed to have something that she didn't have. So in Paris, during Paris Fashion Week, one of those friends invited her to a church service. And in these giant, stunning models walked into church that Sunday morning. You can imagine what the rest of the congregation thought. What on earth is happening? And she wrote this, she said, God bridged the heart and the mind and truly comforted my heart. I sensed a love that I'd never felt before. She wrote, if Jesus was not real, how could I have felt so amazingly loved? She said, I know fake happiness, that is what the world of modelling relies on. But this happiness was true. It was outside of my power. God changed me. Jesus Christ in the Gospel of John, the first time he speaks, asks a question. And the question he asks is this. He says, what do you want? What do you want? An amazing question 
that puts its finger on this issue. What are we living for as human beings? Where are we going to find that home for our soul? Where are we going to find the deepest longings of the human experience satisfied? Well, Jesus Christ, who asked that question, what do you want, at the beginning of John's Gospel, goes on to claim to be able to satisfy the longings of every human heart. He said this, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But hold on, I hear you say, are you honestly trying to say that the poor son of an unmarried first century mother who lived in a tiny country under occupation in the Middle East, could that person from the dust of books and history honestly have the answer to life's deepest questions? Are we crazy that in the 21st century here in the middle of Edinburgh, we're still even thinking that that's possible? But I suggest to you tonight... That is the critical question. Even if it sounds nice, even if it sounds appealing, is it actually true? And is it true on more than one level? Is there truth to Jesus' claims in the sense that they are actually true, that he did exist, that he is God, that he did enter human history, and that he can meet us today? And are those claims true in the sense that it's not just true in an abstract sense that you might be able to to think about and other people might be able to access, but is it actually true for me as a person, as a human being today? So that's what I want to spend a couple of uh, moments together thinking about. Is this true? And is it true on more than one level? Now, this question, this word um, truth is a contentious word. Um, In the aftermath of um, Donald Trump's uh, election to the White House, I don't know how you feel about that, but in the aftermath of that, all sorts of things have happened around this word truth. The word post-truth became the word of the year, according to the Oxford English Dictionary. And there's all this stuff out there, isn't there, about, about fake news. And there was this huge spike in the sales of dystopian novels shortly after Trump was elected. Um, the book uh, by George Orwell, 1984, you may have studied it at school, that, that book that, that explores questions of truth and the potential sort of end of the world in in terms of a totalitarian regime, that book, after Trump was elected, went up by 9,200% on Amazon into the top spot. Or we could look at um, books by Aldous Huxley, like Brave New World, or The Hunger Games. You know, suddenly in our culture, we became interested in consuming dystopian literature and watching films that explore questions of, of truth and co Questions of truth can be disconcerting. We don't know where we stand. We don't know whether we can trust the evidence. 
Now, when we think about truth in abstract terms, perhaps it's less important to be sure um, of our sources. You know, perhaps we don't really mind about fake news um, when it comes to, to truth in abstract terms. You know, we might hear a report that the government minister in charge of, let's say, Brexit undermined the prime minister in a particular situation. And we might think, well, you know, maybe it's true, maybe it's not true. The newspapers are reporting it, but honestly, I don't really care. It doesn't apply to me, so it doesn't matter. So truth in the abstract, at arm's length, maybe it's not so important to be certain. But in the personal realm, whoever we are, we care about truth. Is it true that your girlfriend cheated on you last night? Is it true that the person you grew up with believing to be your father is actually your father? When it comes to those kinds of questions, suddenly it does matter whether truth is a category or not. Those are not the kind of issues that we're just going to shrug our shoulders around and think, well, everyone's truth, everyone's perspective is equally valid. And Jesus Christ locates his claims, his claims to be able to satisfy the longing of every human heart. And the Christian claim that God actually entered space-time and history, that God entered the material world that he had created. Christian faith locates those claims in the realm of truth that matters, not truth that we just think that's a matter of preference. We could look at something like the choice between ice cream flavours. And some people might say, I prefer chocolate. Another says, I prefer vanilla. Or we could look at something like the law of gravity. And someone might say, I prefer that the law of gravity exists. And someone might say, I prefer the law of gravity doesn't exist. But it matters, doesn't it? If we're going to jump from that balcony, whether we believe it or not, the law of gravity exists. Some things are about choice, chocolate or vanilla. Some things are about truth that will affect us personally, gravity. And Christian faith locates Jesus Christ in the realm of gravity, not ice cream flavours. This really, really matters. Now, if Jesus is God who created the universe, God who is the rational principle, the logos behind the universe, the one who's always existed, the one who is the source of information, the one who is the source of complexity, the source of creation, the source of life. If God on that scale entered the space-time continuum in history, then we ought to expect that to have made an imprint on history. If Jesus is God, we ought to expect him walking the earth to have made a massive imprint on history. And that's exactly what happened. H.G. Wells, not known at all as a Christian, says that Jesus is the most dominant person in human history. Even if we look at something like the English language, many of Jesus' sayings, remember, the son of a poor unmarried first century woman, 
living under occupation, under one of the most powerful uh, regimes the world has ever known in the Middle East 2,000 years ago. His words have become proverbial in the English language. Words like the salt of the earth, love thy neighbor, do unto others, the good Samaritan, the prodigal son, the blind leading the blind. Judge not lest you be judged. The one who lives by the sword will die by the sword. Wolves in sheep's clothing, cast the first stone, eat, drink and be merry. It's just the sign of the times or go the extra mile. Every single one of those phrases originating from the man of Jesus Christ, a huge imprint on history and on culture. But is there evidence that we could trust his claims? I recently, um, I, I live and work in Oxford, I recently went to take a group of visiting students to the Documents Library of Magdalen College. Um, it's the college where, if you like C.S. Lewis, where, where he was based. And we were going to view three fragments of Matthew's Gospel, believed by scholars to date from around um, 200 AD, uh, between 150 and 200 AD. The existence of such fragments underscore the fact that the original Gospel of Matthew could not have been completed any later than the first century in the lifetime of Matthew, the disciple of Jesus himself. In other words, the gospel accounts are not made up by later scribes layering mythology over history. And the miracle claims around the person of Jesus are not later editions. Now we can study history and we can look at the time, at the rate of what's called legendary accumulation. You see, legend, mythology takes time to develop. We could look at a historical figure like Alexander the Great, and we could look at the, um, auto, uh, the biographies written about him by Arian and Plutarch, written more than 400 years after Alexander's death. And yet classical historians are interested in them and mine them for detail about Alexander. The fabulous legends about Alexander the Great don't develop until the centuries after these writers. It takes time for legends to accumulate around historical figures. But when we look at the historical person of Jesus, there wasn't time. The gospel accounts were written in the lifetime of the disciples of Jesus himself. And we could look at something like the claim at the heart of the Christian faith that Jesus Christ is God who created the cosmos, the logos, the source of information and science and rationality and um, energy and, and all that we see around us, that he entered history, that he died on a Roman cross and that he rose from the dead. We could explore whether that actually happened, whether that resurrection is true or not. And many people have sought to do that. Historians, lawyers, many clever people have looked into the evidences and have concluded that based on the evidence, it is overwhelmingly likely, overwhelmingly probable that Jesus was actually raised from the dead. One example I would give you is Professor Richard Swinburne, professor at the University of Oxford um, in philosophy for many years, who did a piece of research into the resurrection of Jesus. And he examined it using probability theory. 
He took the uh, formula known as Bayes' theorem. In assessing the probability of Jesus' resurrection from the dead, assigning different mathematical factors um, to uh, different aspects, and allowing for the artificiality of ascribing very precise figures to each factor, the number Professor Swinburne uses as the example of the calculation of the probability is 97%. And then he went to the World Academic Conferences and um, shared his research. In other words, he's arguing that the evidence overwhelmingly supports the conclusion that Jesus did, in fact, rise from the dead. And he writes, says this, no other explanations have been offered in 2,000 years of sneering skepticism against the Christian witness that can satisfactorily account for how the tomb came to be empty, how the disciples came to see Jesus, and how their lives and worldviews were transformed. Is this true? Is it a warranted belief? We've looked at the evidence for materialism. Is that going to make us happy? And we've seen that the evidence shows us that it is most unlikely that the thing many, many people are pursuing is going to make them happy. And then we can examine Jesus' claim and we can say, is there evidence that anything about Jesus is actually true, that he was God or that he was raised from the dead. And I suggest to you that the evidence that is there for the Christian faith is extremely strong. But the truth about him is not merely intellectual or historical, although it is both. In claiming to be the bread of life, Jesus is asking us to believe that life And real ontological change, transformation of the human heart are possible if we come to know him. See, Christian faith isn't primarily an intellectual position. If true, at its heart is an offering of relationship with a God who actually exists and who promises ultimate meaning purpose and satisfaction are found in meeting him. Meeting him is like eating the bread of life, he claims. So is that really true? We can look at historical evidences for Jesus, whether he's made an imprint on history, whether the resurrection happened. But what about that claim that coming to know God through Jesus actually satisfies the human heart. Well, listen to the verdict of Matthew Paris, one of Britain's leading atheists, brilliant writer, one of my favourite journalists. Um, And uh, he uh, grew up in Africa. He um, was the the son of of parents who were working um, in, in southern Africa went to Cambridge University, was, wasn't a Christian at all, but sort of became a committed atheist at Cambridge. And he wrote this um, in the Times. Now I'm a committed atheist. I've become convinced of the enormous contribution that Christian evangelism makes. And this is sharply distinct, he writes, from the work of secular NGOs, government projects, and international aid efforts. These alone will not do Education and training alone will not do. 
drawing on his experience of going back to where he'd grown up in Africa, he wrote this, Christianity changes people's hearts. It brings a spiritual transformation. The rebirth is real. The change is good. He goes on, I used to avoid this truth by applauding as you can the practical work of mission churches. It's a pity, I would say, that salvation is part of the package. But Christians, black and white, do heal the sick, do teach people to read and write. And only the severest kind of secularist could see a mission hospital or school and say the world would be better without it. I would allow if faith was needed to motivate missionaries to help them, fine. But what counted was the help, not the faith. But, he says, this doesn't fit the facts. In Africa, Christianity changes people's hearts. It brings a spiritual transformation. The rebirth is real. The change is good. That's the verdict of one of the leading public intellectuals in Britain today who happens to be an atheist. I wonder what you think of that the possibility that coming to know Jesus might actually change you, might actually change me. Because in Christ, we're met as we are. We're not expected to jump over moral hurdles or learn a whole great ream of rules or religious regulations. We're invited to encounter Jesus ultimately through his death on the cross. It was Gandhi who said the cross of Christ is the most overwhelming aspect of the Christian faith and it is singularly unique. The idea that God would not just create the universe, would not be the source of cosmic brilliance, of intelligence, of matter, of energy, of creativity, of life, but that that very God would enter his creation in Jesus and would meet us in our human condition, in the brokenness that you and I know and experience. Not just shining brightly, overpowering us with the glory and goodness of his face, but actually to meet us in the brokenness of the human condition. God, not just in glory and beauty and brilliance and intelligence and purity and power and majesty, but God in brokenness, God on a cross. I finish with this. This is what the brilliant theologian John Stott wrote. He said, I could never myself believe in God if it were not for the cross. The only God I believe in is the one Nietzsche ridiculed as God on the cross. In the real world of pain, how could we worship a God who was immune to it? He goes on, I've entered many Buddhist temples in different Asian countries and stood respectfully before the statue of the Buddha, legs crossed, arms folded, eyes closed, the ghost of a smile playing around his mouth, a remote look on his face, detached from the agonies of the world. But each time, after a while, I've just had to turn away and and in imagination turned instead to that lonely, twisted, tortured figure on the cross. Nails through hands and feet, back lacerated, limbs wrenched, brow bleeding, mouth dry, intolerably thirsty, plunged into God-forsaken darkness. That is the God for me. He laid aside his immunity to pain. 
he entered our world of flesh and blood, tears and death. He suffered for us. All the paths that are out there available to us, from, you know, Scandinavian sort of cosy cashmere blankets to all sorts of religious systems, to the pursuit of money, materialism, or to the pursuit of fame. All of these paths will claim to be able to lead us to that ultimate fulfillment and satisfaction that every single one of us is looking for. But where does the evidence lead? I believe it's at least worth investigating the possibility of Jesus and the rebirth he offers us through his death on the cross. And the wonderful news is that he is just a prayer away from every single one of us. We don't need to know or master rules or rituals to receive that satisfaction, that bread of life he offers because he offers us himself as that bread of life. All we would need to do was acknowledge our emptiness, acknowledge our hunger, acknowledge our brokenness, acknowledge our need for him and to turn away from all of that and to turn towards him. And that's an offer that's open to every single one of us here tonight. Why not try reaching out to him? Why not try testing Matthew Paris's conclusion that the rebirth Jesus offers is real? Why not? He's just a prayer away from every single one of us. We're just going to close our eyes for a moment, have a moment of silence And um, I want to offer you that opportunity to open your heart to God, maybe for the first time or the first time in a long time. And just in the silence, um, just to call out to him if you want to, in your own words, in your heart, you don't have to say them out loud. The Bible says that if we will draw near to God, he will draw near to us. So a moment of quiet now. God, I thank you for that promise in the Bible that if we will open the door to you, if we will draw near to you, you will draw near to us. And so we welcome you into this church tonight and we welcome you into our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, we've got some time for questions now. We do. So we've got 47 questions. We're probably not going to get through all of them. I'm just going to put that out there. Um, But let's start with this one. So uh, some of the most inspiring people who are loving and caring for people on earth aren't Christians. How does that line up with Jesus being the only way? Brilliant. Great question. Um, There are a number of ways that I would approach um, sort of answering that question. And the first would be to really ask the question, what do you believe a human being is? And to encourage you to to consider um, the the different alternatives to um, that question, the different kind of alternative answers to that question. 
You see, um, we, could, we could look at the worldview of atheism, and if we were to ask the question, what do you believe a human being is, then the answer to that question would be, we're just here by accident, and we're slime on a planet, by chance, purposeless, um, we don't know wh why we're here, and, and there's, there's, there's nothing different, there's no transcendence about human life, there's nothing different about human life and there is say really about animal life or even plant life or um or any kind of other aspect of the universe that is also slime just here by chance and specifically when we look at um what it means to be human for coming from a sort of atheist perspective uh, we might think about a mechanism called the survival of the fittest which, which means that human life came about through a process of the strong eliminating and eviscerating the weak and so within that worldview if we were to look at a good person and ask why does that good person exist the answer would be they're just slime on the face of the planet and there's no real difference between that kind of life or any other kind of life and there's certainly no kind of logical reason no sort of evolutionary impulse to be good rather than to not be good so that would be one way of approaching that question as a, a Christian, if someone says to me, someone who doesn't believe in God, someone who's not a Christian, and there's all this goodness about their life, how do I explain that? Well, I would go to the Bible and I would open it up at chapter one of the first book of the Bible, Genesis. And what I would read there would be an account of, of what a human being is. And I would read an, a, an account, an explanation as to why human life is in some way transcendent and why, regardless of what people's beliefs are, regardless of their ethnicity, regardless of their socioeconomic um, background, regardless of, of their gender, there is something God breathed about them. The Bible calls it the image of God. So a Christian explanation as to why some people do good things is rooted in the sacredness of life, which is rooted in the idea that all of us, whoever we are, as human beings, are image bearers of our creator. So it wouldn't be a, a logical problem at all about belief systems or or um, the, the, the culture we come from, or even whether we actually agree that there is a God or that Jesus exists, the Bible still says that every human life is marked by that reality, that transcendence, the image of God. Great. Second question, why do we bother praying if we can't change God's mind? Wow, okay. I'm not sure how that question came from um, what I was talking about. Why do we bother praying um, if we can't change God's mind? Um, I think sometimes people imagine, and actually in a lot of religious systems, prayer is a, a sort of currency. You know, um, I don't know if you, any of you have kids or enjoy slot machines yourself, but for me, it's the absolute dreaded moment when you're at a bowling alley and there are all those slot machines and, and my children want to sort of pour one pound coins in and come back with one sort of tiny piece of plastic tat and think that was a good outcome. Um, anyway, some people imagine that prayer is a sort of a, a currency within a mechanism. 
that there's a, a slot machine and you put in the currency of prayer and you get a particular outcome related to that as if God is in some way mechanistic. That isn't at all how um, the Bible envisages or speaks about prayer. One of the things I've been trying to, to speak about tonight is the reality that, that God is a personal, relational being who invites us into relationship through Jesus, ultimately through the cross. But as the Christian life goes on, you make a decision to become a Christian. You accept the forgiveness that Jesus offers through the cross. But that isn't the end of the relationship. That's the beginning of the relationship. God is actually real. He, he speaks and he interacts with his creation and with you and I. And one of the ways that, that that happens is through prayer. So prayer is much more of a conversation than it is a currency to try and twist his arm to get him to do things. But just like in any genuine relationship, um, you know, between um, lovers or between friends or um, between a parent and a child, just as in any relationship that is genuine, part of that relationship, part of that conversation is going to be bringing our needs into the conversation. And an aspect of prayer is to bring our needs before God, to tell him about those things and to ask him to do particular things. Now, um, if, you're not here, if you're not a Christian here tonight, I, I guarantee that if you were to speak to a Christian that you know, perhaps someone you came with or someone in your life who is a Christian, and you, you were to ask them, as you look back on your prayer life, has God answered every single prayer you've ever prayed? Almost every Christian will say, definitely not. If you were to ask them, as you look back on your life, are you really, really glad that God didn't answer everything? You, are, you didn't give you everything you asked for him. Most people will say, I'm really glad. There are some things that I asked him for that I'm so glad he didn't give me. Prayer is a conversation. When Jesus talks about us um, asking for things in his name, it's part of a relationship, a deepening relationship. And often he will answer and often our prayers will be connected to him answering. But often we'll look back on our lives and we'll think, I'm so glad God didn't give me what I asked for at that particular moment because he loves us and he knows the end from the beginning. Um, so prayer is much more of a conversation than a currency is what I'd say to that. Great. This is the most highly rated question. How do we, it's unsurprising when you hear it, how do we respond to gender identity debates when our Christian scriptures don't address these questions? How do we respond to gender identity debates when the scriptures don't address the question? That's very interesting because um, I think that in some senses, the scriptures do address the question. And I, I, I think of two examples. Um, the first uh, would be around, um, we've talked about Genesis chapter 1, but when we get to Genesis chapter 3 and then we read into the New Testament, we see this, this concept that God, the creator, the logos, created the universe, brought the universe into existence, brought life into existence, and that what he made was good. And then as we read forward 
we read um, about the consequences of human moral decisions that have been made. And there are all sorts of moral consequences that, that, that flood into our experience of the world, the earth, um, uh, just the way even uh, the world works, disease and, and death and pain and suffering. And then it talks about um, alienation in relationships um, that, that people now struggle to get on. And it also talks about a general sense of alienation perhaps with our bodies, um, perhaps between us and, and creation or between us and others or between us and God. And so I think um, at the very least, a Christian who reads the Bible will read um, into the cultural situation we're facing as, as, as people struggle with questions of gender and identity. At the very least, a Christian who reads the Bible will read our world empathetically. A Christian who hears of, of someone struggling with questions of gender identity and thinks, I hate that situation, I don't like those people, I don't want to think about it, is not reading the Bible. The Bible speaks about a world in which people struggle. People struggle with their bodies. People struggle um, with the relationship between each other. People, people struggle with who they are as a result of what's called um, the fall. So our experience of life is going to be an experience of struggle and turmoil. And then as we read um, into the Apostle Paul, Paul speaks about creation groaning, groaning. So um, that's that, that sense of, of things not quite being right and, 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 and fighting to, to discover what is right and, and who we're meant to be. So the first thing I would, I would read into that is empathy. I think the second thing um, that I would say is that in Christ, we are offered relationship with God that, um, that offers us um, the satisfaction for the deepest hunger of our soul. And at least some of the questions around identity in our society will be spoken to by encountering Jesus and, and welcoming Jesus into that journey of, of discovery and struggle around identity. The second thing I would say um, is that um, questions around sexuality and questions around um, gender identity are acknowledged and spoken about in the New Testament. So, for example, we meet um, a eunuch as one of the first converts to Christianity in Africa and as the founder of the Ethiopian church. And the Ethiopian Coptic church still exists today, tracing its origins back to a conversation between someone called Philip and a eunuch. So to, to read this very simply and say the Bible doesn't speak about people like me or the Bible doesn't speak into the questions of our generation, I would say be really careful before you write off Christianity or the Bible. It has plenty to say. But at its heart, is, is not a sort of moralizing. You need to be like this. You need to meet this standard. You've got to do this or agree with that. 
at the heart of the Christian faith is God offering himself to us in relationship and saying, whatever our struggles with identity or our bodies or whatever our our wider cultural struggles may be, the ultimate emptiness, the ultimate hunger in all of us, which may be expressed in all kinds of different ways, will be met through meeting Jesus Christ, not through meeting a marriage partner, not through living a particular lifestyle or not living a particular lifestyle, but ultimately through meeting Jesus Christ. Great. So this is a summary of a few questions that were asked. How do we share Jesus with people who are happy and content in their life, who think they don't need Christianity? Great. Thank you. Um, I think um, the first thing I would say to that is to say, how well do you know the person? I think in my experience of life, every person I know, however wealthy and successful they are, every person who's a human being and experiences life on planet Earth experiences pain and struggle in some area. That may not be a physical struggle with health or it it, it, it might be in the area of relationships. Um, So I think I would question the person who says that they're deliriously happy the entire time. And I suppose um, my, uh, my encouragement to you as a believer would be to live alongside people in such a way that they invite you into their pain and in such a way then that maybe you might be able to invite Jesus into their pain. Um, that would be in simple terms how I would answer that question. So are you expecting that to be a longer answer? <laughs> I'm done with that one. <laughs> so have we got one more? Yeah, we're just going to do one more question. We're going to keep this open as well throughout the week because next week we're going to do um, a panel um, where we'll be able to ask some more questions. Um, and I think this is really a really good opportunity for us to be able to grapple and wrestle with some of um, these big questions. Even the sheer amount of them shows that there are a lot of questions um, in the room as well. So you can submit questions and vote them up throughout the week as well. Last one. So Last one. So, yeah, I know. This is, this is a lot, a lot of pressure. <laughs> okay, let's go with this one. Why does the God in the Old Testament seem so different from the God in the New Testament? Oh, a nice easy one to end with. <laughs> okay. Um, quite a common question Um, and I imagine that behind that question um, is the sense that in the Old Testament God is sort of a bit mean like he commands people to go to war and um, in the New Testament um, God is really nice and really lovely and inclusive and you know what's happened is he's schizophrenic Um, or is there some sort of you know major incompatibility between the Old and the New Testament. It's a, it's a common question. And um, the answer that I would give to it is that both those ways of reading the Old and the New Testament, they misread both the Old and the New. So in the Old Testament, we encounter, yes, God who judges evil, 
and um, the sort of wars and, uh, and those sorts of actions in the Old Testament can be understood within a context of a God who judges, who brings accountability where evil has happened. And we see that in the Old Testament. But we also meet the God who loves the victim who calls people to, to, um, to justice. I don't know if you've read any of the Old Testament prophets that speak about the poor hearing the good news, that um, people who are prisoners and in darkness through coming to know God can come into the light. And those two things are held together in the Old Testament, just as, in fact, they're held together in the New Testament. You see, in Jesus, we meet, and, and uh, the, the, the story of the New Testament is not, um, God doesn't judge evil anymore, there's no moral accountability, he's just loving. No, we see um, accountability for evil and love must go together. Let me give you an example to sort of illustrate that. Um, uh, a number of years ago, before we planted the church we're part of now, my husband and I lived in the inner city in London. And we were there for seven years. And um, a particular woman um, came to know Jesus in our church. At the time, we were the same age. We were in our mid-20s, 27. Um, I didn't have any kids yet, but she, this woman had five children. And she lived on an upper floor of a tower block. She also had three dogs in her apartment. And none of the dads of those children had stuck around. In fact, the father um, of, I think, the third child was a crack dealer. And he was in prison. And she had a restraining order against him. He was a very violent man. And the second he got out of prison, as is common in these situations, he went straight round to her flat, broke in. Restraining order didn't work. Five kids are there. Her oldest daughter was 13. And um, he attacked my friend and he sexually assaulted her oldest daughter. And the four other kids were there and my friend was left for dead. Um, she nearly lost the use of one of her eyes. And when I saw her um, hours after this attack, she was completely unrecognisable. I don't know if any of you have ever... Um, been alongside someone who's been a victim of that sort of violence. It's extremely disturbing. Um, the doctors were amazing. They saved the sight in her eye and she recovered. But here's the question. I'm alongside my friend. I know her 13-year-old daughter. She's in our kids' ministry and I love this girl and I love my friend. And um, I'm standing with her in this absolutely horrific moment of her life. What does love call out for in that situation? Do I think, oh, it doesn't matter that this guy's done this. We should just let him get off. Is that the response of love? No, love cries out for justice. And in the Bible, love and justice go together. Moral accountability is not dissolvable, dis um, separatable from love. The two go together. So what you see in the Old Testament is that um, war and some of the other things are means of justice or God's judgment against real evil, against the maiming and the hurt of victims. And sometimes people say, oh, you know, it's a racial thing. It's as if Israel were racially superior and they were always kind of meeting out judgment. You don't read that at all in the Old Testament. 
The children of Israel are more frequently on the receiving end of judgment by means of war than any other group. What you see is that that justice and love go together both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament and ultimately they meet at the cross. You see, at the cross, Jesus is a, a, a sacrificial death. His death is a sacrificial death. So he's dying for us in the sense that he's taking upon himself the just deserts of all the things we've done to other people, the ways in which we've exploited the poor, the ways in which we've bought things in our economy because they were cheap, but actually those things were created by children in factories. The things that we've done in spoiling the environment and causing global warming, the things that that we've done in our relationships with other people, the things that if you love the people they affect, you would demand justice for them. And at the cross, Jesus offers us payment. He offers us himself as, as the sacrifice for every single one of us. And so God's judgment, his justice, and his love for us and for the world meet uniquely at the cross. And so, yes, there is discontinuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament. That era of the Old Testament does come to an end. There are lots of things that come to an end. But there is also continuity that love and justice go together. And we see that in the Old and in the New Testament. I think we'll leave it there, but thanks for listening. Amazing. Amy, thank you so much.